Paul has called this church, the church at Colossae, that has received Christ, received Jesus the Lord, the Lord who contains all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom, that those who have received him and his word, Paul told them to then walk in him. In other words, he was saying, let every aspect of your life be conformed to Christ. Let your thoughts, your deeds, your living, your moving, your being, let it all be in step with Jesus Christ. So that as a church, you may be rooted in him. Rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rooted in knowing that he alone saves, that he alone is our salvation. He alone is our redeemer. He alone is our reconciler. He is alone sufficient for us in every way. Paul said not only rooted, but also built up, growing in our faith, layer by layer, becoming more and more like Christ day in and day out, maturing from one degree of glory to the next, so that you may be fully established in the faith, having a deep confidence in God, in Christ, in what God has said, and what God has done. Paul said there at the last of our last lesson we looked at that we were to be reminding ourselves of what we've been taught. Reminding ourselves, the church to remind themselves of the, the message of God, of the Word of God over and over again. Why did Paul call the church to such things? Why was this so important for the church of Colossae? Important enough that Paul felt burdened to write them a letter. Why was it so important that they had a right knowledge, right thinking, the the biblical Christ, and that they would hold fast to Him? It was to give this church a fighting chance to resist the onslaught of bad teaching that they faced. In hopes that they would be bathed in the truth of God that the truth of God's Word would ooze from their minds. That the truth of God would, would direct every single step of their life. That they would know the biblical Christ so well that they could spit, spat, sorry, they could spot any counterfeit. They could resist any command that God had not given them. They could resist looking at the shadows and calling them the real things. Their eyes would not be devoted to what was worthless in hopes that this church would remain steadfast in Christ and Christ alone. In verse 8, Paul, he begins this verse with the word beware, as the new King James Version puts it. You could translate it be vigilant or, or be aware. Be alert. Look out. Modern translations say, see to it. And Paul is calling them to keep their eyes open. And this is a call for each and every one of us to keep our eyes open. Why? Because there is a deceiver. And his teachings have infiltrated the church. They did in this day and they continue to this day, this very day, to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. This church was to keep a watchful eye. They were to be alert for such things. This here is a command from Scripture 
that each and every one of us need to take heed. Why? Because as I said, there is one who would seek to deceive you. And he has many that will do his will. He has many that will pervert the things of God. This morning, my question for you as we approach this text is, will you resolve in your own heart to be alert, to be on guard, to have your eyes open, to be discerning? is what Paul is calling the church to. The typical Christian mindset of the 21st century is to believe anything that is labeled Christian. As if that label, Christian, makes it good. As if because of that marker on it, it's been approved by God. However, this is not the case. Satan will always seek to make false teachings look as close to the real deal as possible. With slight variations, variations enough, why? To stray your heart away from Jesus Christ. For this church, it was for the false teachers. Yes, you need Christ. Yes, you need Jesus. And, and everybody in the church would be like, amen. Yes, Jesus can save you. But you need more than Christ. His revelation is not enough. This is what the false teachers were peddling. Jesus' words were not enough. His salvation is not good enough. Yes, it is good. Yes, you need it. But you have to do more. See, can you hear the way that Satan covers these teachings? It's this deceptive. It's easy to be deceived when, when a false teacher declares truths about the Lord that you love. And yet at the very same time, sprinkles in lies. For those who are asleep, for those who have their eyes closed, for those who are unwilling to be alert, they can easily be devoured, easily be overcome by such things. The call from this text is that the church would be alert, and it is so important. I have an example this morning that I believe that we've probably all experienced in life. Someone that is not alert, they get sucked into some crazy teaching. What happens after that? Try to talk to them. Do they listen? Not likely. And they actually become zealots for that lie. They became almost, almost like brainwashed. They have a hard time believing or receiving or hearing anything else. And they will resist any truth given. And what do they often become? Evangelists or, or spreaders of their movement, trying to convert others to their aberrant teaching. It happens over and over again. It'll consume them. They'll get caught up in things. They'll just eat it up over and over and over again. They'll, they'll find every bit of information on that lie that they can, and it, and it takes over their heart. And eventually you'll actually see them, and some of you have experienced this, deny the biblical truths 
that they once held tightly to. It is an utter tragedy. Denying things that they once certainly believed. As if they've been taken captive. As if they've become slaves of false doctrine. As if they've been captured by the enemy. They have no ears to hear or eyes to see. And so Paul says to the church, be alert so that no one takes you captive. The NKJV and the KJV, they they both have a, a translation of this verse that I don't think is quite right. One says, so that no one may cheat you. The other one says, lest anyone spoil you. But if you look to the original Greek word, it's only used here in the entire New Testament in its military language. It did not necessarily mean to cheat or to spoil, but to carry off. Like one who would plunder another nation and take what was not theirs. The spoils would be theirs. Take captive is a good translation. As if false teachers are at war for your mind. Desiring to carry you away as a spoil of war. Desiring to rob you out of God's camp and bring them securely into the enemy's camp. And take captive, it makes perfect sense, right? Because this is how it's played out in our daily lives. The teachings, they are seductive in nature. They appeal to our flesh. They appeal to our pride. They are exactly what we want to hear so that we can remain in our sin. They tell us of our self-sufficiency, of how amazing we are, how we can do this. You can earn it. They appeal to our idols in life. Because they appeal to our flesh, what we want to hear most, we can easily be captured by such things. And for those who are At times, they are no longer recognizable. Their former beliefs become truly that, former beliefs. Now holding to the very teachings that took them captive. Paul says, be alert. This is why he called you to to be rooted in Christ, rooted in his word, to walk in him, to be established in him, to know the biblical Christ and to know him well. Why? So that you may not be deceived. We have forgotten that Satan is cunning and more crafty than most. And God, he desires us to be established, rooted Grounded in the faith, walking in him. In other words, what Paul has been telling us is to put on the full armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to turn there, it's just a few chapters back. Two pages in my Bible. In verse 10, I just want to read that. I want you to hear the similarities in the text. He says there in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded yourself with the waist, with, with your waist, with the truth. What's that? The word of God. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, there it is, walking in him, as Paul has said in Colossians chapter 2. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your, your hope, you're rooted, you're grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Above all, taking on the shield of faith. Remember in verse 2, where Paul talked about the riches of the assurance that is found in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul is calling the church to take up the shield of faith, which is able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, that Christ Jesus himself, and the sword of the Spirit. Remember, all the treasures of the knowledge and wisdom of God are found in Christ Jesus according to verse 3 of Colossians chapter 2. And here in Ephesians 6, Paul tells the church, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is how we are to be alert. This is how we are to be on the defensive. This is military language. Not only in Ephesians chapter 6, but again here in Colossians chapter 2. How can we resist the attacks? How can we resist the enemy? How can we resist his false teachers? How do we keep from being taken captive? Drenching our minds with the truth of God's word. John MacArthur put it this way. To Paul, it was unthinkable. I really want you to hear this quote. It was unthinkable that those who had been ransomed and redeemed should be vulnerable by ignorance and thus in the spiritual war become prisoners of some spiritual predator with false doctrine. God has redeemed you. He has reconciled you to God. He has made you new. Now walk in it. And a part of that walking is the fact that you are alert. You have the treasures of the knowledge of the wisdom of God deeply and firmly in your heart. And you are able to resist the false teachings. And to put Paul, it was unthinkable to him that anybody that named the name of Christ would not be on alert. Would not have eyes to see the attacks of the enemy. In other words, Paul has been calling the church to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to every area of your life. Looking to God's word, not only for when you come to church on Sunday, when you're reading your Bible, when you're praying, these kinds of things, spiritual things. No, everything that you do in your life. Everything. Not looking for worldly wisdom, not looking for worldly philosophy, but for the Word of God, to the Word of God, for every aspect of your life. Hear me this morning. You are not a Christian some of the time. In fact, if you claim to be a Christian some of the time, you're not a Christian. 
There is no one foot in, one foot out Christianity. That's no Christianity at all. You are not a Christian some of the time. You're one who is walking in Christ, or you're not. And when Paul says, walk in Christ, he means the entirety of your life. The entirety of your existence. Every part of your being is informed by Jesus Christ. How you conduct yourself, it needs to be informed by the Word of God. How you work, how you love, the people you meet, the things you do, everything informed by the Word of God. How you speak, what you do with your money, how you raise your kids, how you love your spouse, how you lead your home, who you submit to in this life. God has something to say about it. All of it. And when we reject this, we might profess to be believers, but we are living like atheists. We're saying we're Christians, but God has spoken to us. And he has given us our marching orders. And if we do not do them, if we do not consider them, if we have not based our life on them, we might profess to be believers, but we're living like atheists. Every area of our lives are to be brought in subjection to the word of God. If we follow anything else, we follow what Paul called philosophy or empty deception. Don't hear me wrong this morning. We can learn much from the world. We are created in the image of God. There's much to learn from secular history, much to learn from the world around us. That's not what Paul is getting at. We're all created in the image of God, and believers and unbelievers alike do amazing things because we have an amazing creator. They just don't give credit to God for the amazing things that they do. The point is to not to reject all knowledge. But the point here for Paul is that as a believer, the direction of our life, our walk, our thoughts, our faith, our practice, it's to be informed by the word of God. By all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ Jesus. And Paul states if this is not the case, if Christ is not our focus, we are in danger of being captured by what he called philosophy, which I would say was literally the, the, the pursuit of truth without Christ. And philosophy is not necessarily a bad thing, but here, for these false teachers, it was, it was knowledge that was not rooted in Christ. Philosophy is, is asking the question, who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? What is our purpose? And it was like asking all those questions without looking to the Creator. It's like asking those questions without looking to His Word. Asking those questions without looking to what He has said. It's like refusing to go to the manufacturer when you have problems with something they made. It's like refusing to or completely ignoring the owner's manual for how to operate something. That is what the pursuit of truth is apart from God and his word. It's like groping around in the dark blindly. For this church, the opponents were claiming to have knowledge apart from Christ. 
They were claiming to have a special knowledge, a higher revelation. And Paul is stating here, he's been making the case that it's outside of Christ. It's, it's unnecessary. It's, it's not useful. It deceives. To have Christ is to have all the information that you need. To have Christ is to have all God wanted to reveal to us. It's found in Him and His Word, plain and simple. Anything else? In, re- in regards to salvation and life of godliness, it's dangerous to the soul. In, pa- in fact, Paul says that their teachings are empty. The word literally means empty, they, it, void. They speak as if, with such confidence, as if they can build up people. I have the word for you today, and it's going to make your life better. It's wonderful. Just wait till you hear it. And the word that comes out of their mouth is empty. It cannot build. It cannot grow. It's, it's zero. It's, it has no value. It's vain. It's fruitless. It's bankrupt. That's Paul's point. For the Christian, if you have Christ, what was his point in the beginning of this chapter? You have all the riches. You have all the treasure of knowledge and wisdom. Now compare that to what he is saying here. Empty. Worthless words. Everything we need for life and godliness, where is it found? It's found in Christ and Him alone. Knowing that, why would you look to what is empty? Knowing the value of Christ, why would you ever let your eyes move off of Him? Knowing that Christ is the greatest treasure, where true wisdom and knowledge is found in this life, why would you ever look to what is worthless? The King James calls it vain deceit. Other translations, empty deception. This is all it is. It sounds good. It sounds spiritual. It sounds like it will be good for you. It sounds like what you want to hear. But ultimately, deception. Ultimately, empty. A dry valley. A parched land. This morning, let no one kidnap your mind with such teachings. These false teachers in this church at Colossae, they claimed visions from God. They claimed special revelation about angels. They claimed to know things that the church needed to know. Paul warns the church, this is worldly philosophy. This is empty deceit. Not only that, like most cult leaders, like most peddling a false gospel, always want to put the people under a yoke of bondage. Anyone caught up in false teaching, it doesn't take me long in a conversation with them to find what the yoke of bondage is inside of that false teaching. The slavery of it, the burden of it, the hard, grueling work of it, they all have it in common. And here for these false teachers, it was the commandments of men. It was traditions. It was a works-based system. 
Not only did they come with their false teachings, they came with burdens, heavy burdens to lay onto the people of God. They came with, you must do this and you must not do this, even though God had not said. A form of legalism is adding to the commandments of God. And this is what they came with. There is a saying, I say it a lot, I like it a lot, a saying I first heard from Phil Johnson. It goes like this, we as Christians should make no law where there is no law. We need to memorize that, have it in our hearts. We should make no law where there is no law. Why? Because God's word is sufficient. We don't need to be adding to it. He gave us commandments. We don't need to add any more. These are good enough. Let's just stick with them. Let's make no law where God has made no law. So what do we often do? We all have our traditions. We all have our opinions. We think things are right in our minds. Things we prefer in worship, things we don't. Things we do in our personal lives, things that others do not. The question should be for all of us is, has God spoken? Has God said? Has he given us clear commandment? If not, we should not be making laws where there are no laws. And if God has not said it, just because it's our tradition, just because it's your tradition, does not mean it belongs in your life or belongs in the church and vice versa. Everything that we do should be based on what God has said. And we should be making no laws where there are no laws. For this case of this church, they had made their traditions. They had made their commandments. They had made their false system the law. And they took these burdens and they heaped them on the church. It was not from God. It was not rooted in Christ. It was worthless. For this church, that's what the opponents sought to do. To place their tradition, their view of right and wrong, their view of eating and drinking on the church around them. Their commandments, their teachings on the church. And Paul, what's he call them? He calls them tradition of men. Traditions of men. In other words, they weren't from God. They weren't rooted and grounded in God's word. They had been handed down. And most likely, long Jewish traditions here, handed down through the centuries. And here now, forced on to the New Testament church. It's what they've always done. We've, heard, we've always heard that, right? It's right because we've always done it. It doesn't make it right. <laughs> you could have been always wrong. You know. It's what we've always been taught, so we should teach it now. That doesn't make it right. Paul calls them what they are. Traditions of man. Now compare that to what he said about Christ. Compare that to what he said about Christ in his words. About his, comparison, uh, about his commandments. There is no compar comparison. One is called treasure. One is called riches. These are traditions of men. One, the basis for our entire lives. One, another worthless. I want you to just think about that this morning. We need to, we need to think about that closely. Traditions of men passed down through the centuries. 
been now forced on this church and hammered and said, this is right. Just as Christians, in humility, as we look to the Word of God, just because it's passed down doesn't make it true. As I said, just because you've always done it or always believed it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it biblical. We should always be willing to grow. We should always be willing to once again submit ourselves to what God has said. We should always be be constantly checking our own hearts. Why is my desire like this? Why do I want what I want? Why do I do what I do for this church? What they were doing was, was not helpful. It was not a good thing. It was empty. It was worthless. If you've studied your Bibles, you can obviously learn of the dangers of tradition of men. Study the Gospels, study them often, and you will hear Jesus attacking the traditions of men. The Pharisees were, were mainly guilty of this. They believed their commandments were right. They believed their commandments were from God, but they weren't. Their commandments were commandments of men, and Jesus called them traditions. And this is one of the reasons that the Pharisees hated Jesus Christ. In their pride, they created these commandments. In their pride, they they thought these teachings were, were divine. In their pride, they held their traditions as capital T tradition. We will not change this ever. And when the Son of Man comes on the scene and he starts bucking their traditions, they hate him with a passion. And eventually, because he will not do what they say, he will not submit to their unbiblical teachings because he threatens their very power, their very existence. They put him to death. They put him to death. If we ever have any root of this, any inclination of this, any drop of this in our hearts, when the things we do contradict the word of God, God's not wrong, we are. We need to repent. We need our thinking once again conformed to the word of God. Paul, he goes on to say that their traditions are according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. This saying, it can mean many different things. But in short, it means basic or elementary. Paul is stating that these teachers, what they're pushing, it's simplistic. It's fleshly. It's not according to Christ. They claim to have the highest wisdom. They claim to have the highest knowledge. But Paul is telling them here, it's really quite childish. It's really quite dull. It's not according to Christ. John MacArthur put it this way. To abandon biblical truth for empty philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after earning a doctorate. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. To abandon biblical truth for empty philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after earning a doctorate. Sounds pretty absurd, right? So they might say their teachings are for the mature. They might say that it will get you to spiritual enlightenment, to the next level of maturity. But Paul is saying something quite the opposite. This is elementary. 
This dulls the hearer. This erodes the beauty of the gospel. Addition is always subtraction when it comes to Jesus Christ. One of those teachings that was so prevalent in the teachings of these opposition in this church was that Jesus was merely created. That he was an emanation of God. That he himself was not God. And not being God in the flesh, the church needed more than just Jesus. Paul wants to obliterate that thinking. And that's why he's inspired to write verses 9 and 10. Look at them real quick this morning. In verse 9 he says, The fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. And that is what he was saying is, all we need is in Christ. The fullness of God is there. Christ is God himself. He's he's the incarnate God-man. He's not merely created. He did not empty himself of his deity. He, He did not cease to be God. He was not created by the Father. The false teachers claim to have the fullness of God in their teachings of angels. And here Paul says the fullness of God, it's found in Christ. And that Christ is everything to us. All we need for salvation, for a life of godliness, for justification, for sanctification, for glorification. It's found in Jesus Christ. And that is the point that Paul makes in verse 10. That you are complete in him. Amen. The fullest life. The fullest everything that you can have in this life. It's found in Christ. The fullness of God, it's found in Christ. Christ is sufficient. Once again, how many times have I said that through this book of Colossians? Once again, Paul is saying to us, Christ is sufficient for us in every way. So you need not look to another. We need not long for more. We should never have a heart that says, Pastor, give me something more than Christ. We need not get bored with Christ. We need nothing more. No greater revelation. No spiritual enlightenment beyond Christ. No second experience is needed. We have our complete need in Jesus Christ. You have Christ. There's no greater level to receive. You've received the fullness. You are complete in Him. This morning I want to finish with one specific application from verses 9 and 10. TBN, it's a very popular TV channel. A TV channel I've made no secret that I do not support, condone, at all. A, f- a channel that I believe to be full of those who would like to capture you with empty deceit. How do I know? Verse 9 is how I know. Many of them, not all of them, if you listen closely to those teachers on that channel, they clearly teach that Jesus came to earth as man and not God. They will say things like, Jesus completely emptied himself 
of his deity. That as he walked this earth, he was a man just like you and me. One of the reasons they do that is because they want you to believe that you can be just like Jesus. That you can do all that Jesus did. And I promise you here, no one is ever going to be like Christ. Christ is the glory of God revealed to man. Christ is the greatest revelation ever known. He's the divine logos, God's word to you. God wanted to make himself known. How did he do it? He did it through Christ. No one's Christ. No one's like Christ. No one's ever going to be like Jesus. You are not Jesus and you'll never be. You need Jesus. And yet these teachers say that Christ came to earth as man, not God. And I'm going to tell you this morning, this is the bottom rung of discernment. This is the bottom rung of having your eyes open right here. The easiest to spot. Excuse me, he did come to earth as God. And it's right here in verse 9. It couldn't be more obvious for us. Who's right? Those teachers are the infallible, inerrant word of God. All my money, all my hope is that verse 9 is true. And in verse 9, it says there, without a shadow of a doubt, that when Jesus walked this earth, he's fully God and fully man, fully divine. And yet, yes, like you and me, having a body of flesh. The fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. It's right here in the text. Fully God, fully man, one Christ. That's what you see. The fullness of God wrapped in humanity. This is true. This is the true Christ. This is the Christ where, where all of the fullness of God is found. It's this Christ. It's no other. And see, when we peddle anyone that is different than this, we say anything that is different than this, we give a false Christ that cannot save we give a false view of Jesus that is no savior at all. An idol of our making that cannot get the soul to heaven. And so this is why Paul, he implores the church to have your eyes open, to be alert. Because I promise you, those teachers, they say a lot of good things that you want to hear. But here's a detrimental error that'll kidnap your brain and potentially damn your soul. Make sure you have the Christ of the Bible. The Christ that is able to make the vilest sinner complete. He's able to give you the fullness of God, of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's eternity. Look to this Christ and look to him alone. Be alert. Many want to pry your eyes away from Jesus. Many want to capture you. 
Many want you to see an unbiblical Christ. Resist them. And today, my hope for all of you is that you will keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ where all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are found.